coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy Thursday to you live from the A. We're going to start off and just dive right on into the Cop City story, which just, it, it's almost like one of those three season story arcs that just continues to be tune in worthy, honestly. Yesterday morning, we had a SWAT raid where three volunteers for the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which is just like a, a local bail fund, were handcuffed and dragged away and are, are now in jail in the DeKalb County Jail. Well, actually, let's get an update on that. We have a former federal prosecutor who can tell us all about these charges and, and the latest on this. Alex Joseph, thanks for joining me. I appreciate that. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I am a federal prosecutor, and I also think important for this story, I'm from Atlanta. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that gets me. And look, I'm only an expert in money laundering in that I've watched three seasons of Ozark, okay? But okay. this feels like a, an odd thing to charge people with unless there's like rock solid evidence. And, and what does your gut tell you about that? Well, I think that if there was rock solid evidence, we would see it. Um, I used to be a prosecutor. I worked closely with law enforcement in that role. And we wanted our cases to be perceived as a slam dunk, as yeah. rock solid mm -hmm. by the public. Mm -hmm. Money laundering in general. Well, I'm going to let you describe what money laundering is for those who just aren't quite fully aware. Because, again, I have the three season of Ozarks. For me, it's, it's you, you're taking bad money, money from ill-gotten gains, and you're using it for good gains to try and process it through a system so that it's good money again. That's kind of the layman's term, right? Yeah, and I would really say that the heart of money laundering is hiding money. So you've gained this money through an illegal activity mm. and you need to hide it. So that is money laundering. And normally people are laundering money or hiding money by having an illegal enterprise and then running a legal business and sort of switching the money in between the two. So how does that play with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which is literally just fundraising to have money to pay bail for those who have been arrested and jailed, it's, it's, it, especially in the heat of the whole cop city debate. They are charged with money laundering and they are charged with charity fraud, a, a charge that I've never seen before. Mm. And it's important cops know and use the tools that work for them. So why do they reach for something a little bit strange in this case, which I'm happy to talk about. All but right. here they are accused of raising money, money that was earmarked as a charitable contribution, and then secretly and without the knowledge of the people that donated the money, giving that money to what uh, the attorney general is calling a violent organization. And in support of that charge, in the affidavit, they're saying that that money was being used to pay for COVID tests, yard signs, tote bags to reimburse for gas. And the total amount across all three people that were arrested, the total when added together, is $40,000. So in order to believe what the state is selling you here, you have to believe that this $40,000, and that's it, that's not a huge amount of money, was being used to fund and run a large criminal enterprise. And frankly, I just don't see it. Is there a monetary level where this becomes like a federal charge versus a state or local there's not a monetary level, a monetary amount where it becomes state versus federal. Okay. It's a little bit who chooses to prosecute because there are similar crimes on the state and then on the 
federal level. I will say the feds, and I was both a state prosecutor and then a federal prosecutor, the feds tend to take slam dunk cases. So when you see cases adopted by the feds, it's usually a sign it's a good case. Here, um, not only is this an unusual case, charity fraud, but it's very unusual to see state entities prosecuting white collar crime, which is what this case is. And so for me, this really feels like the state is stretching a muscle that it's never stretched before. And frankly, I don't think they did a warm up. I don't think they understand what they're doing. I don't think they have the evidence. But I will tell you why I think they went out on a limb. All right. So I think they went out on a limb because they are seeking to cast as wide a net as possible. And that is for two reasons. First, they want to send the message to the public that this is a well-organized, well-funded, large criminal organization. And so simply by reading money laundering, charity fraud, and seeing all of these arrests, you think, wow, they are large, they are well-funded. So it's a PR campaign. And then the second reason I think that they cast this wide net is they want to intimidate people that have not been arrested from testifying or supporting. But they also, the people that are caught in this net, the people that have been charged, they will face tremendous pressure to enter into plea deals where they compromise and turn state witness. They will also be unable, if they wanted to be a witness for the prosecution because they themselves have been charged, they're no longer, longer able to do so. And when I describe this to people, they really think I'm describing a conspiracy. But these are the decisions that I used to make as a prosecutor. Uh How can we use charging decisions to identify witnesses, to ensure cooperation, to shut down an enterprise or organization? Um, In fact, I once prosecuted a pimping ring, and we went so far as to charge the women that were being sex trafficked because that was the only way we could ensure their cooperation. And that sounds like a really cold-hearted decision, Mm -hmm. but frankly, prosecutors want to win. So to your first point, isn't that sort of contradictory? Like they're trying to make the appeal that the entire anti-cop city movement is this well-organized criminal enterprise, but also they're bad at bookkeeping, which doesn't sound very organized. I mean, the charity fraud is kind of a, look, they didn't keep the books very good. We got them. I mean, couldn't any charity at some level, be charged with charity fraud? Oh, I think that there are huge charities that can and should be uh, faced with charity fraud. I mean, I want to be clear, the year that I left the U.S. Attorney's Office was the the lowest year for white-collar prosecution in this country. There are millions of people that are stealing millions of dollars from hardworking employees, from charities, from unions, and we are simply not prosecuting those cases. In this case... We know that charities spend a large portion of their budget on overhead, and I am not convinced that the the charges, the meaning the the things that they're buying, whether it's the tote bags, the gas, the COVID tests, I'm not sure that those aren't simply overhead costs, cost of doing business. Yeah, that that's a fantastic point. Uh, also, to your second point, I, I mentioned this yesterday. I, I had Micah Herskind on yesterday, and. I pointed out to him how hard it is to get folks on this show to speak against Cop City. I mean, I I have politicians who are dodging me. I have, uh, yeah, at, at all levels, politicians and and spokespeople who are dodging me. And I'm I I kind of call that up to intimidation. And I think again to your second point, you know, these arrests they they may lend to that. 
Right. I think that there is there has been widespread intimidation and suppression of speech associated with cop City. So not only have there been these arrests, both the recent arrests and the domestic terrorism arrests, a Georgia Tech student was yeah. censored when he wrote about it in his newspaper. Um, the student who was arrested for domestic terrorism, Jamie, has been kicked out of UNC. I mean, there's wow. really been widespread suppression of what I view as legal political speech. And I think that's one reason that you aren't seeing political figures get involved. I also think that like on a state level, people think that this is a local fight. And I want to say two things to that. One, unfortunately, this cannot remain a local fight because even though the property is owned and will be operated by the city of Atlanta, it is located in DeKalb County. And the issue with that is that the people that are the most directly impacted, they don't have an avenue to appeal to their elected officials because they don't have a voice here. It's disenfranchisement. And then the second reason I would urge statewide political figures to get involved, I know they think this is a local issue, but I always go back to the Presidential Parkway. I was born and raised in Atlanta, and the Presidential Parkway was meant to be an interstate that ran through Decatur, that really ran through a neighborhood. Yeah. And it was stopped by a huge group of citizens. By the way, those citizens, they took extremist measures. They destroyed um, construction equipment. They spray painted over signs. And then some of them you know, were more mainstream than that. But they stopped that parkway from being built, and it was very much because John Lewis, a national figure, stepped in. And so I want these politicians and these public officials to know that there is a historic record of these hyper-local issues, you know, for us asking them to be held accountable and to give a statement because these hyper-local issues don't stay hyper-local for long. Mm -hmm. And cop cities are being built across the country. And so don't think this won't happen in your backyard. We're on with Alex Joseph, former state and federal prosecutor, also uh, a pretty vocal uh, opponent of the Atlanta Public Safety uh, Training Facility slated to be built in Southwest DeKalb. I wanted to ask you, the governor released a statement uh, via Twitter yesterday that sort of makes it hard for prosecutors to actually carry out this case because it just sounds like the governor's already decided they're guilty, right? I mean, that, can that can that play a role in if these charges go to court? I'm going to answer your question, I promise, but I'm going to answer it in sort of a roundabout way. All right. In the domestic terrorism charges, one of the people who is accused, her lawyer this week filed a motion asking that the case be thrown out because the statute, the domestic terrorism statute, is unconstitutional. I want to be clear in my capacity as a prosecutor. I'm in private practice now. I've looked at a lot of criminal statutes. That statute on its face is the most unconstitutional statute I've ever seen. And it was written in 2017. So it wasn't even meant to be, it wasn't written to suppress cop city protesters. Mm -hmm. It was clearly written by lawmakers all the way back in 2017 to suppress political speech they didn't like. Yep. And looking at the charges now, these um, bail fund uh, people that were arrested, I also think that those charges won't hold up in court. And there are several typos in the warrants, including the wrong date. And when I look at those things, people sort of say to me, well, doesn't that show that the state, they're a bunch of jokers? And I go, no, it's so much scarier. I think that we're seeing that the state no longer cares about looking legitimate. Mm. This is all about scoring political points. And I very much think that Kemp released that statement because Chris Carr his the current attorney general is going to run for governor. 
And so Ken is teeing him up to run after his term is over. And they have a clear narrative. That narrative is, look at Chris Carr. He has put away an organized collection of domestic terrorists. And that sounds so much better on a campaign flyer than what it really is. Chris Carr has gone after a bunch of students and disorganized volunteers who hand out pizza and arm bracelets and really want to save a forest. And so to me, this is serving such a clear political message. And I'm sorry I don't have the stats in front of me now, but one of for me, I'm obsessed with prosecutors. I'm a former prosecutor. And one of the things I always want to say to people is you have to pay attention to prosecutors because prosecutors stick around. And I think it's as high as one out of five elected officials is a former prosecutor. So when I say that all of this is to send a political message to get a prosecutor, Chris Carr, elected to governor, that is a path that we have seen over and over again. And frankly, I think it might be successful here. It's, it's a persuasive narrative. And if you're not living Atlanta, I think you buy it. Our guest to start the show, former state federal prosecutor Alex Joseph. We'll talk more Cop City with her after the break on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Thursday. Back half of the show, we have Ari Drenanon from Media Matters for America. It is the first day of Pride, and Ari is the LGBTQI plus program director for Media Matters for America. She is paying attention to the disparity in coverage when it comes to grooming children at Target and Coles versus the Catholic Church and their many and storied abuses. In the meanwhile, we're on with Atlantan, former state and federal prosecutor, Alex Joseph, talking cop city. It's hard for me not to notice how bipartisan, from a political elected official standpoint anyway, the support for a new public safety training facility is in the face of those who are howling against the militarization of our police forces. This is the cradle of the civil rights movement here in Atlanta, Georgia, the, the capital city of the civil rights movement, right? And in the aftermath of so much police brutality and overreach in recent years, it sort of befuddles me that our local democratic civic leaders are so staunchly in favor of this. Does that not perplex you at all? Um, it does perplex. I want to be clear that, you know, in your intro, you sort of said, a, you know, a vocal opponent to Cop City. I have only been involved in this movement since March. Okay. I sat on the sidelines. I live about six miles from the proposed site of mm-hmm. the training facility. And I will say this. I was very much convinced that the people involved were radicals. And then I dug a little bit deeper. And I think there's been an effective campaign to paint this issue as far left and an effective campaign to paint the people that are involved as radicals. And for years, they have been telling us, look, we already voted to approve the project. There's nothing that can be done. And in fact, they haven't even voted on the funding. You know, the bill hasn't been paid. And so I think that some key decisions were made early on on how, on the narrative, on how to talk about this. And that's why you're seeing the division. And frankly, I think it's not even partisan because I think that moderate Democrats also don't want to weigh in because there has been such an effective campaign from the city to Mm. make this movement look progressive, to make this movement look out of touch. And really, when you get down to it, the people that are in the streets protesting, the people like myself that got off the couch and got involved, 
we got involved because we don't want a forest destroyed. It is Atlanta's largest green space. I and and I, I, I just watching this all play out. You talk about the narrative, and I think that's the problem that I have the most uh, with is that convince me that this is the right place that that obviously we I, I'm not going to argue that we don't need a public safety training facility. But the narrative has just been so screwed up, and not by the super leftist radicals, but by this seemingly well-organized group, the uh, the Atlanta Police Foundation, local politicians, now up to the state level. We're hearing nothing from uh, our two Democratic senators. It seems like they're the ones that have all screwed up the narrative. And I'm not trying to box all of them into the same group, but can can we not? I mean, silence silence is complicity in some cases. I mean, I want to be very clear that I think they are staying silent because they think they can stay silent. And I think that genuinely this issue is not going to stay local for long, whether it's because other cities, counties and states are going to build their own giant militarized training centers or because there's going to be more police shootings, more police violence. And we're going to say, why is this increasing? And it's because we're building them militarized training centers. Um when people talk about police training, and of course we have to train police, I always want to remind them that currently Georgia has a giant state-of-the-art training facility that trains all officers in the state, state and federal, called GYPSTIC, Georgia Police Training Safety Center. It's in Forsyth, Georgia, about an hour outside of Atlanta. And Part of what's important for people to understand about this facility, so not only is it a huge campus to train law enforcement officers, but that is where POST is based. And all officers, in order to be police officers in the state of Georgia, they must be POST certified. And in order to be POST certified, you need 20 hours of POST certification training. I believe, and I've asked this question, I will say I have not got an answer. I believe that they're still going to have to do that post-training that that required 20 hours a year. I think I said a month, but a year. They're going to have to do it down in Forsyth, Georgia. So we are going to spend $30 million building a facility, and then half the time they're going to be getting their training somewhere else. So why not spend the money making that campus in Forsyth bigger and better and more state-of-the-art? I also want to point out that for years, Atlanta has had training facilities in in inside of city limits and the atlanta police department has allowed those facilities to really become had to fall in disrepair and we don't tend to hand giant checks to people that have done a negligent job running things and i don't really know why we're doing it in this case that's a that's a fair point and 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 to add to that, what's to say that they won't do the same thing with this new facility? That, again, the overwhelming majority of folks who show up to speak for or against these things in council meetings is against. I mean, I know I'm talking a lot about this facility in Forsyth, but it's run by POST, which is the Peace Officers Standards Training okay. Council. And the thing about POST is this is what they do for a living. They train officers, they write the standards for officers, they handle disciplinary um, actions and keep track of disciplinary records, post records. So to me, it seems very obvious that you would hire people that are trained to run a facility. And Atlanta PD has no experience running a facility. They've done it poorly in the past. And the Atlanta Police Foundation has no experience running a facility like this. And so we're basically building a $90 million facility 
and we're letting people with no experience or expertise run it. And to me, that just seems like bad business. Um, and I also just don't think it's what officers need. I do want to point out that the executive director of the Atlanta Police Foundation makes over $400,000 a year. And I was working for a judge back when the Atlanta police corruption scandal happened. I don't mm -hmm. know if you remember that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but dozens of officers were charged. Atlanta police officers were charged with taking bribes. They all qualified for public defenders because they made so little money. So we're in a world in which the head of this police foundation, the head of sort of the lobbying group for Atlanta PD, makes over $400,000 a year, and the officers that he represents make poverty wages. And I think if we want to start supporting officers and supporting firefighters, we need to give them higher raises, give them their pensions back. Their pensions were recently taken away. Mm. And I think that that would boost morale and make the city safer far more than a training facility that we do not need and we do not want. Former state federal prosecutor, Atlanta native, Alex Joseph, I want to thank you so much for providing some perspective and insights that even I hadn't heard before. Thanks for coming on The Ron Show. All right. Thank you so much. Archived audio, blogs, social media links, and more all in one place. Log on at ronshowatl.com. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Second half of the show, and I am honored to be joined on the first day of Pride by... Media Matters for America, LGBTQIA plus program director, Ari Drennan. Ari, happy Pride. Happy Pride. Yeah. Thanks I'm, for having me on. I, I, I'm, I'm always excited when uh, Pride Month rolls into existence, but I feel like we're so battle-tested from <laughs> the first five months of this year and all of the 2022 election cycle that <sighs> I just kind of want to take a moment to catch my breath and enjoy the moment, even though I think this month is going to be another 30 days of battle. Does it not feel like that to you? It does feel like that. It feels like uh, the LGBTQ community and, and trans people in particular have been kind of the main entree of the attention economy for quite a while now. I'm glad you mentioned the trans community because I think that is an important distinction. I, uh, it, it seems that with the advent of marriage equality, there seems to have washed over American society a bit of, ex if not acceptance, at least, well, no, I guess an acceptance would, would work, it, at least a, a resolution that, well, there's nothing that can be done about that. And now they're focusing their ire on the trans community. And I pointed this out a little bit yesterday with another guest. Sometimes even within the LGBTQ plus family, we're not all on the same page. But I, I'm glad to have you on the show. Uh, I, I follow you a lot on Twitter. And man, you deal with a lot of crap from the Matt Walshes and the Daily Wire <laughs> goons. It's it's disgusting. And you hold your own and you do so in such an eloquent way. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm glad to hear it isn't too annoying. I try to strike a good balance, but you know, I, I want to keep people entertained for sure. Well, also let's point this out too. Hats off to Media Matters for appointing you their program director for LGBTQIA plus stories because listen. I know this as a white male myself in 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 the gay in the gay tent. Gay white males tend to get these lofty roles, so it's nice to see that you know you're you're in charge there. And on that note, let's talk about some of the disparity in coverage we're getting and seeing from the likes of oh I don't know Fox News when it 
comes to <laughs> the pride displays and the desecration and how scared their viewers are of grooming children. And, oh, by the way, they're ignoring the Catholic Church. Give us some more on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I thought these guys were all upset about cancel culture. It turns right? out that they're chomping at the bit to to lead the way on it. Um, as you mentioned with the Catholic Church, I think that's a really important point of comparison because they like to say that this is all about protecting children, right? Mm-hmm. That this is something that their their listeners, their viewers need to take seriously in order to protect children. Um, but you know, their their silence on comparable actual threats to children speaks volumes. So the fact that, you know, they've had more than two hours of coverage of backlash to Target's Pride Month displays and less than a minute of coverage on on sex abuse in the Catholic Church in Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, that's that seems pretty backwards to me. And listen, I'm not even going to just focus solely on the Catholic Church because we've seen a lot of this happening in Protestant evangelicism as well. And it goes largely ignored by right wing, well, by the media in general. Yeah, I mean, the unfortunately, sexual abuse of children is a, a horrifying and common problem in our society. And honestly, the ability of people to talk about it has really been hampered by the fact that the right wing media is so intent on conflating, you know, children finding out that some people have two dads uh, (laughs) with literal sex abuse. Yeah. So Pride Month has not just blossomed on the tree here in recent years. We've been celebrating Pride for decades now, and American corporate culture has evolved in the last 10, 20 years or so to embrace it as well. Why is this now such a white-hot, burning, raging issue for MAGA culture, more so than it seems to have been in the last five or ten years? I think that they were in search of a new electoral issue. Uh, you mentioned marriage equality earlier, and you know the Supreme Court uh, decision extending marriage equality really took uh, took this off the menu for them. Uh, as a political issue. And so, you know, you saw the kind of anti-gay, anti-trans forces on the right sort of try to regroup after that and keep throwing things against the the wall to see what what stuck. And eventually they landed on this issue of of trans kids in sports because, you know, they they, um, were able to poll test this and see that this was an issue of weakness for LGBTQ people and an issue where they could get people interested. Um, and then once that door was open, continue the backlash against all LGBTQ people because, you know, they've been quite clear that they do not see a role for trans people to exist as ourselves in public in America. They do not see uh, a role for for pride in, you know, in America. And so um, they're doing everything that they can to try to turn the public against it. And, um, you know, they've been quite clear about this to then criminalize it, to make it illegal. As a trans American, you have faced a lot of this, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure you've seen it face to face, but I know you see it on social media because I sit back and watch it. And again, I marvel at how you're able to handle this like uh, like the, the central character in The Matrix, you know, fending off the bullets <laughs> and the swords and whatnot from all directions. You do just a fantastic job with this. But it's Thank it's a you. very real thing, not just for the Ari Drennans of the world or the Dylan Mulvaney's, but 
I, you know, I, I know people here in Atlanta and have known people throughout my entire existence as a gay person living in the South. And trust me, in the South, it, it, especially outside of major cities, it's dangerous. Yeah. So the disparity in coverage, I want to go to that because that's, 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 your, that's your role at Media Matters for America. Give us exactly how much coverage Fox has given to Target's gay pride display versus the most recent uh, case of uh, child abuse, sexual child abuse by the Catholic Church in the Midwest. Yeah, uh, so a recent study that Media Matters did looked at that coverage and found that Fox News had given over two hours of coverage to Target's pride displays. Um, this was a few days ago, so yeah. I would imagine that that number is much higher now. Sure. Um, and comparably, they've spent less than a minute talking about a sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. Unreal. I mean, yeah. I, I, I say that, and yet at the same time, Fox News has been on the air for what, nearly three decades. It's not something that's just now, you know, washed over us. So I know you focus on Fox News, and I know you guys pay attention to right-wing media in particular, but it's... It's not just a right-wing media problem. Wouldn't you agree with that? It's really become a problem throughout the media. Um, you know, a, a way in which this shows up is that, you know, trans people will be cast as a sort of central villain on Fox News and in the right-wing media. Yeah. But then all too often in the mainstream media, trans people are a group that is discussed but is not seen. And, you know, there are so many trans people who are legitimate experts uh, in their field, whether that field is, you know, medical treatment, whether that field is, uh, you know, looking at the media, what I do. And, um, you know, I think that when people are not seeing that trans people are their neighbors, their coworkers, their family members, um, they're not seeing that we're a part of their community and that makes it all too easy for hateful propaganda to take hold because they're not they're not seeing that we're just ordinary people like everybody else. I can't remember if I've had you on since uh, this mini controversy boiled up uh, central to actually uh, nor northern Georgia here. We have a vice chairman on a school board in Cherokee County who is a former yeah. pro wrestler, Rick Steiner. Uh, Rob Rick Steiner is his real name. He's a, even a real estate agent, as, as am I. He's a real estate agent. And also vice chair of the Cherokee County School Board, who slurred a trans wrestler at a wrestling convention. And to be honest with you, I was kind of surprised that it even got local coverage at first. And I, mm -hmm. I'm also going to tell you, I'm not at all surprised, Ari, that first of all, it was during spring break. So the Cherokee County School Board was going to do nothing about it. There was nobody to answer a phone to give a statement, but also not surprised that when the offices did reopen, nothing was said about it. There wasn't another school board meeting for like a month. And then there were like a handful of people who spoke, but nothing was said or done. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, we need to go back to this, uh, this ethos of the Americans of live and let live. Mm -hmm. I understand that a lot of people don't know trans people don't really understand the experience that, you know, it's, it's a really rare experience still. And I think that um, folks should, you know, really try to look in their hearts and and understand that just because they don't know what trans people go through, that doesn't mean that they have to cast judgment on us. And, you know, I think that 
coming up to a trans person in, in public and, and screaming at them is just not the polite way to live in a society. All right, I got to commend you for taking the high road on that because in my mind, it's something that someone who sits on a school board should no longer be allowed to sit on a school board for. And I know it's your job to cover national media and their hyperbolic focus on things from a completely skewed perspective. But I have issues with our local mainstream media giving this man a pass for his school board compatriots giving him a pass, his school superintendent giving him a pass. But I digress. That being said, do you do this? Uh, by the way, we're on with Ari Drennan from Media Matters for America. She's the LGBTQIA plus program director. She's the one that watches Fox News so that we don't have to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> along with, I'm sure, the Blaze and all the other crazies. Uh, do you do this? Uh, when 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 Pride Month gets close, a lot of the businesses change their logos, and then there's the outrage in the comments. Here locally, uh-huh. the Atlanta Braves have Pride Night on June 15th, and predictably, you can imagine the comments that are coming out. Do you yeah. do you pour through some of that stuff and read it too? Because I admit that I do. Yeah, it's you know it's it's hard to turn away from it sometimes, but I think it's important to remember that you know businesses are just trying to make money. Like that's the business of being a business, mm-hmm. and so they market to LGBTQ people because. We are a, a part of American society and, and we're consumers in the marketplace. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of danger in attaching too much meaning to those, you know, rainbow flag logos. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that a thousand percent. And at the same time, I, I'm also cynic enough to, to know that like a lot of it is just about the money and not about actually being supportive, but then there's that's another, another topic for another day. But I also tell, <laughs> I, I tell a lot of my fellow Braves fans this who are, you know, well, we're straight pride night. Well, let me ask you this. The Atlanta Braves also have a Mississippi state university night. They have Vanderbilt night. Those are, you know, Southeastern yeah. schools. They have Tennessee volunteer night. I am a Georgia Bulldog fan, but I do not get my knickers in a twist or throw a hissy fit on social media because I'm not a Mississippi State, Tennessee, or Vanderbilt fan. That does not relate to me, but I'm not going to not go because there happens to be somebody who roots for disgusting South Carolina or a Florida Gator fan in the same venue. You know, it's not going to turn me <laughs> into a into a fan of anything but the Georgia Bulldogs. I can I can coexist. I don't understand why that connection just doesn't quite hit their synapses the same way. Yeah. um, And, you know, my family's Jewish and I can only imagine if I were to spend the time from Thanksgiving through Christmas every year getting mad every time I heard a Christmas carol. Oh, my gosh. um, That would be horrible, right? Like, you just have to understand that some people have traditions that um, aren't for you and some communities exist that you're not a part of. I always took issue with the the famous Jewish singers who were singing the Christmas carols, honestly. But, um, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if the if the if the check clears, sing right. I mean, <laughs> that's what. You... <laughs> Ari Drennan, Media Matters for America, joining us, and we appreciate you guys again doing what we refuse to do. We're not going to watch Fox. We're not going to watch the Blaze. We're not going to watch. But you guys are all over that stuff and pointing out the disparities rightly at mediamatters.org. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Ron Show. This is the final segment. Kind of missed this uh, yesterday piece uh, in the jolt at the AJC.com. Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluestein, Tia Mitchell, all writing on this. It looks like Brian Kemp's going to try and flex his muscles and 
try and craft a Georgia General Assembly more to his liking. Uh, they report that he's going to flex his political clout, and I'm sure throw some money around as well, to protect six state House Republicans. Scott Hilton of Peachtree Corners, Deborah Silcox of Sandy Springs, Matt Reeves of Duluth, Lauren Daniel of Locust Grove, Mike Shiokas of, of Americas, and Gerald Green of Cuthbert. I can't speak for Americas and Cuthbert, Georgia, but I got to say, those other four, those are winnable seats for Democrats. He also seeks to take aim at five Democrats. Incumbent state representative, friend of the show, Dr. Michelle Au of Johns Creek, uh, Farouk Mughal of uh, Dukula, Jasmine Clark of Lilburn, and Nabila Islam, state senator uh, from Lawrenceville, as well as state senator Josh McLaren of Sandy Springs. So this machine actually has a name. It is Georgian's first leadership committee that Brian Kemp is going to throw some money behind. And uh, Cody Hall tells the reporters at the Jolt that this is to thank the governor's Republican allies and take the offensive against Democrats, quote, who put their far left agenda ahead of hardworking families in their districts. Josh McLaurin, by the way, went to Twitter to respond to this with, with a gift from... The Matrix, Keanu Reeves with the waving hand. Bring it on. Love that. He also added, in seriousness, here's one anecdote. Explain what I think of Kemp targeting my seat after we got 55% last year. I got an email recently from a woman who disagrees with my position on abortion, but voted for me because of guns. Kemp's staff should read that twice. Good luck. So yeah, this email, he left a little excerpt in the tweet that says, you are correct that Republicans will lose votes over this. In fact, they already have. I personally disagree with your views on some things, the most glaring issue being abortion. But one of the main reasons I voted for you this most recent election cycle is because of your views on gun safety. Hmm. Speaking of Kemp, it it's pretty much a fait accompli that he's going to run for the U.S. Senate in 2026 against John Ossoff, who will be seeking his second full term in the U.S. Senate. So I was reading this piece about uh, Bill White, the, the the Buckhead Buckhead Bill, Buckhead Bill has sold his property and he's moving. He's actually moving just steps from Mar-a-Lago in Florida. He, in fact, is going to get a membership at that country club. Yeah, that that Bill White. But that Bill White, who is, by the way, a log cabin Republican, happy pride, y'all, um, actually had some good things to say about not Brian Kemp. John Ossoff. And he says that other Republicans think highly of John Ossoff as well. I'm telling y'all, John Ossoff is a rising star. I would, if if he were to say he was going to run for president in 2028, I'm telling you, he, he, if, if I'm putting money on a horse, that's my horse. John Ossoff, 2028. Just, just go ahead and write that down. Anyway, uh, Bill White was uh, telling, uh, I forget which jolt reporter this was, that he had nice things to say about John Ossoff. He said that his Lake Burton neighbors, who are Republicans, spoke so highly of Ossoff's constituent services and staff responsiveness that he started watching the Atlanta Democrat more closely. He's being very smart, Bill White said. I reserve judgment on him. I'm very impressed. Now, Bill White did say he's unlikely to vote for John Ossoff in 2026, only since he and his husband will soon be Florida residents. Okay, well, that's why. <laughs> They're planning to register to vote as soon as possible in order to cast their ballots for former President Donald Trump over Governor Ron DeSantis in the Florida GOP primary, saying that's two more for Trump. 
Ooh, and y'all, the infighting inside conservative circles between the Trump and DeSantis camps is delicious. Oh, my. Laura Loomer and uh, Buck Sexton and Clay, what's his name? Clay Travis, just going at each other. Oh, it's delicious. It's like watching a pit of vipers just go at each other. Okay, so... Y'all know I'm a huge fan of mass transit. I'd love to see more MARTA. I've always dreamed of that MARTA rail ride to the battery. And maybe one day, before I die, I'll be able to take that MARTA rail ride to the battery. However, as much as I want to see more money spent on mass transit, $6.7 million just to study something? What the actual... I mean, seriously, we're going to spend $6.7 million to study not not rapid rail transit, no, bus transit. What's being looked at is sort of similar to the peach passes that we have at uh, 75 north of Atlanta and south of Atlanta, except this will be on 285. And you're thinking, well, but that's, that's not mass transit. That's not rapid transit. No, I know. But the Atlanta Region Transit, transit Link Authority Board today awarded $6.7 million in a contract to an engineering firm called C.D. Smith just to study transit on the top half of I-285 between I-20 East and I-20 West. So those tow lanes will follow along I-285 in the median there from I-20 East to I-20 West and back. But those lanes can also carry buses. And so... Local regional transit officials believe that that 35 miles of perimeter lane could be the basis of a commuter bus network connecting what they say are eight cities and three counties and multiple transit services. The problem I see with this, though, is folks who tend to use mass transit buses, um, they need to get to bus stops that are near where they live. Who lives along 285 where these bus stations where the $6.7 million study will tell us they'll be placed. So how does that work exactly? I mean, you literally have to live like along 285. And yes, there are some residential developments along 285. Otherwise, we wouldn't have those huge, ugly barrier sound walls there, right? But by and large, most people who use buses don't also use cars, right? I mean, you would almost have to take a car to a parking lot to park at a bus station to walk over to the pedestrian bridge over 285 to get on the BRT bus. Y'all, that doesn't, that's all, this, this is, this is bad money, man. Spending $6.7 million just to find out where you're going to put these bus stations. Eh, I don't know. This just doesn't feel right. And yet at the same time, we do need rapid transit along 285. And that 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 rail line that I'd I'd like to be able to take from Midtown at some point in time to go to a Braves game and back. Boy, I just tell you what. Anyway, I don't know about that. Uh, I'll share the uh the article that I saw uh at the AJC.com earlier that uh, covers that. I'm skeptical, but I'm also just blown away that we're gonna spend six point seven million dollars just to study where we're going to put bus stations for folks to Lost 285 by foot to get on a bus to get to the other side of I-20 or somewhere in between those eight cities and three counties to get where you're going. Mm. 
That ain't rapid transit, y'all. I'm sorry. I don't see it that way. Anyway, that's going to do it for The Ron Show. I want to thank uh, our guest today, Alex Joseph, our, our local former state and federal prosecutor who lives in the city of Atlanta and gave us a great bit of information today on the Cop City Saga, as well as Ari Drennan from Media Matters for America, the LGBTQIA Program Director for Media Matters, covering the disparity in coverage. Shocker. Fox News, guilty of that? See you tomorrow at 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast links at ronshowatl.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great one.